Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. This episode contains distressing themes and descriptions of sexual violence. This podcast is intended for a mature audience. Listener caution is advised. They Walk Among Us is part of the Acast Creator Network. For centuries, a church has been seen as a place of refuge and sanctuary for some in desperate need of help and shelter. Many people who are down on their luck or require support go to their place of worship for guidance. They often hold the clergy in high regard, a group they entrust with their troubles and confessions. In 2006, a discovery in a Glasgow church demonstrated how evil can lurk in the most sacred places. Horrible, horrible individual that cared about one person himself, and he took people's lives away for his sadistic pleasure. It just felt creepy, and his eyes bored into you the whole time, as if he was stripping you, you know what I mean? If this scumbag is, if he's murdered any more young teenagers... It'd be nice for their families to find out exactly and put them to rest. Welcome to Season 7, Episode 57 of They Walk Among Us, a podcast dedicated to UK true crime. This is part one of a two-part case. The second instalment will be available in four days. This is the final case of Season 7. Twenty-three-year-old Polish national Angelika Kluk moved to Scotland during the summer of 2006. She had been undertaking a Scandinavian languages course at Gdansk University before she made the big move to Glasgow. 
Angelica began working and staying at the chapel house at St. Patrick's Catholic Church in Anderston, Glasgow, a place known for its open house policy and status as a refuge for people in need. Angelica was a devout Catholic, and it was her second time spending the summer in Scotland. Payment for her role as a cleaner within the church included accommodation. Angelica was not alone in Scotland. Her older sister Annetta lived in Glasgow and worked as a secretary. It suited the pair as the siblings were close. In late June of that year, Angelica had been working as an au pair when she was introduced to 40-year-old Martin McCaskill, the marriage chauffeur. They began a relationship and their feelings for one another developed rapidly. After joining his wife in Majorca in September, Martin returned home eager to see Angelica. He tried to call her on the evening of Sunday, September 24th, but the calls went straight to voicemail. The following day, Martin spoke with her sister Annetta, who had also not heard from Angelica. Martin then went to the church and discovered that Angelica had not turned up for work either. She was due to return home to Gdansk on October 2nd to resume her studies. However, when Martin and Annetta checked her room, they found that all of Angelica's belongings were still there. It was unusual for the young woman not to contact anyone, so after failing to find her, Strathclyde police were informed and Angelica was reported missing. Father Jerry Nugent, the St. Patrick's Parish priest, spoke about his concern for Angelica in the days after she disappeared and said, This has come as a terrible shock to everyone who knows Angelica. It is totally out of character. She is a very organised person who is committed to her studies and is due to return to Gdansk very shortly. All who know her will be praying for her safe return. Angelica had been golfing that weekend with an older man named George. On the day she went missing, she had been helping another volunteer, Pat McLaughlin, paint a garage. Two days after Angelica was last seen, her sister Annetta appealed for information. I'm 100% sure Angelica would never disappear. Something like that never happened before, and she's just not like that. She's just too too responsible and, and very thoughtful towards other people to pull anything like that without letting them know that she's all right after such a long time. Angelica Kluke was last seen wearing black combat-style trousers, boots, and a pink vest top. She was described as being five feet three inches tall, with light-coloured hair and green eyes. The police questioned everyone from the church who had seen Angelica, but the following day Pat McLaughlin, the volunteer to have last been with the missing woman, also vanished. Father Nugent explained that McLaughlin had been volunteering at the church two months prior through a homeless charity and had been a, quote, godsend. 
speaking with the daily record, the priest said, I thought he was magnificent with all the work he was doing. I am very concerned that he has not been in touch for days. If Pat was in any trouble, I would not abandon him. Strathclyde police issued an appeal to help trace Pat McLaughlin to aid them in their inquiries and released a photograph taken by the charity in an effort to locate him. As part of the investigation managed by Chief Inspector Elaine Ferguson, sniffer dogs were brought to the church to help find Angelica. As the search was underway, a tip was received in response to the media appeal for McLaughlin. A member of the public recognised the man in the photograph as an old neighbour, Peter Tobin. Peter Tobin was born in Johnston, Renfrewshire in August 1946. He was the second oldest in a particularly large family of eight children. Even from a young age, he displayed problematic behaviour that landed him in a reform school within years of beginning his education. In his late teens and early twenties, he served time in prison for theft, burglary and conspiracy. At the age of 22, Tobin met his first wife Margaret Mountney on a night out at a dance hall. She was just 17 at the time and later recalled how quickly she fell for him. Speaking with the Daily Record, Margaret said, He was kind, humorous and a gentleman. We courted for a few weeks before he took me to meet his mother and father in Paisley. They were elderly and frail but very polite, and it confirmed what I thought. This is it. I found the man of my dreams. The honeymoon period was not to last. After moving in with Tobin at his flat in Glasgow, Margaret was subjected to horrendous abuse. At one point, Tobin even took out his anger on a pet, killing Margaret's puppy. The couple subsequently moved to Brighton and married in 1969, isolating Margaret further from her loved ones. Tobin controlled every aspect of her life, from what she wore to where she went and who she could see. The abuse escalated, and Tobin subjected Margaret to violent sexual attacks. On one occasion, he used a serrated knife. As Margaret lay on the floor of the flat seriously injured from the sadistic assault, her neighbour in the property below noticed blood dripping from the ceiling and called for help. Margaret's internal injuries meant that she could never bear children, but she was too afraid to tell the police that her husband had been the one that nearly killed her. After weeks in the hospital, she went home with Tobin and remained under his strict control until he was arrested for theft. Sensing it would be her only chance to escape, Margaret bravely gathered every bit of strength she had and left. <laughs> 
four years later, Peter Tobin met and married nurse Sylvia Jeffries. Predictably, considering Tobin's previous history with his partners, the marriage was marred by violence. He inflicted a more sadistic kind of control after Sylvia gave birth to a little boy named Ian. Three years into the marriage, Sylvia and her young son left Tobin after a terrible event, the death of their second child, a two-day-old baby girl. Sylvia was granted a protection order and thankfully never had to see her husband in person again. Peter Tobin bounced from place to place for the next decade before meeting a teenager, 16-year-old Kathy Wilson, in Brighton. Tobin and his third wife, Kathy, moved to Bathgate, Scotland in 1989 with their little boy, two-year-old Daniel. Kathy later said, He was all sweetness until he had me where he wanted me. Once I was pregnant, he changed and used Daniel to control me. It was always threats to kill or hurt Daniel if I left. He would even pick him up and mimic throwing him to the floor. I felt like a prisoner. Tobin would force his wife to watch as he had violent sex with sex workers and subjected Kathy to the same treatment once the other women left. Like Margaret almost 20 years earlier, Kathy had to wait for Tobin to leave the house for an extended period before she was able to escape. She moved back to England with Daniel in 1990, but when Tobin moved to Margate a year later, Kathy felt she had no other choice than to give Tobin access to their son. By the summer of 1993, Peter Tobin was on the move again. He had found a flat in Havant, near Cathy's home in Portsmouth. On the night of Wednesday, August 4th, two teenage girls aged 14 and 15 were reported missing in the area. Unbeknownst to their parents, the young girls had gone to a block of flats in Lee Park, where they had drunk cider and hung around outside. Peter Tobin saw the teenagers and invited them up to his flat with the promise of more alcohol. One of the young girls had babysat in the area before and was familiar with Tobin, so they were not apprehensive about going with him. Inside the property, Tobin gave the underage girls more alcohol and offered them tablets he called blues. The girls accepted but put the pills in their pockets instead. They did not realise that Tobin had been drugging their drinks. One of the teenagers lost consciousness in the living room and Tobin held a knife to the other and warned her to keep quiet. In a panic, the girl grabbed the knife from Tobin and stabbed him in the leg. At the same time, Tobin's six-year-old son Daniel came into the living room and the girl tried to run out of the flat. Tobin caught up with her before she could flee, forcing her to drink more wine and take more tablets. 
He then tightly gripped her throat as he violently sexually assaulted her with her friend lying unconscious beside them. The second girl finally passed out from the trauma and intoxication. When she awoke, it was light outside, and Tobin was nowhere to be seen. The pain she felt was indescribable. Her throat had been cut, and a knife had been used in a sexual attack. She tried in vain to wake her friend but was unable to, so she ran home to tell her parents what had happened. When emergency responders arrived at Tobin's flat, they noticed the potent smell of gas which filled the air. Tobin fled in the night with his son after turning on the gas taps of an unlit fire. He had attempted to destroy any evidence, and then the lives of the unconscious teenagers left behind. Daniel, who had witnessed the violent attacks, was returned to his mother's care before Tobin went on the run. The two girls were taken to Queen Alexandra Hospital, where one of them was admitted into intensive care with severe internal injuries. The other spent weeks on life support. Within days, the police issued a media appeal for Peter Tobin to hand himself in. Detective Chief Inspector Nick Imber, who was then leading the inquiry, said at the time, We urgently need to talk to Peter Tobin in connection with allegations of false imprisonment and rape. He is normally a very calm and steady man and a loving father. The girls have suffered a terrible ordeal, and we are having to coax the story out of them very gently. We are also very concerned for Mr Tobin's own safety, particularly since he deposited many of his valuables with his wife before disappearing. The police asked members of the public to be on the lookout for 46-year-old Tobin, who was believed to be driving a blue Austin Metro. A Crime Watch appeal was issued in September 1993. Peter Tobin managed to evade the police for over a month, hiding out within the Jesus Fellowship, a religious sect based in Warwickshire. However, a vigilant member of the public recognised his car in Brighton. A short time later, he was arrested. Tobin was initially charged with attempted murder, unlawful imprisonment, rape and indecent assault. He denied the charges, but by the time of the trial at Winchester Crown Court in May 1994, he agreed to take a plea deal that would save his victims the trauma of having to face him in court. Tobin pleaded guilty to rape and an act of buggery in relation to one victim and the indecent assault of the other. The presiding judge, Mr Justice Waterhouse, spoke at the sentencing hearing, said, It was an appalling incident. I think the worst I have ever come across. To describe what happened to these two young girls as an ordeal is quite inadequate. Two girls of a very tender age have been seriously affected, 
It may well be that their prospects in life have been gravely and permanently impaired. Tobin was handed to 14-year sentences and a 5-year sentence, all to be served concurrently. Outside the court, D.I. Stewart stated, The families have lived with this extreme tragedy for the last nine months, and only now will they feel able to rebuild their lives. Peter Tobin was released from prison in 2004, spending the remaining years of his sentence on licence and as a registered sex offender. He lived in Paisley, Scotland, and befriended Cheryl McLaughlin, the girlfriend of an acquaintance. Cheryl spoke with reporter Donna Watson, saying, He was always very friendly, but not overly friendly. He seemed like a nice old guy. I'd lost my dad a couple of years before and I suppose I felt as if I saw a bit of a father figure in Tobin. We would chat about all sorts of normal things and he was never ever sleazy. He never even made those kinds of jokes. On October 23, 2005, Cheryl agreed to go to Tobin's flat to watch a football match. As she got up to leave, Tobin pulled out a knife and attempted to stab Cheryl. Cheryl managed to grab the weapon and push it away, but she sustained a deep cut to her hand in the process. She later described the attack. Eventually, he was on the floor but still holding me, and I was just trying to get away. That was when I noticed a tie and a belt stuffed down the sides of the seat. I realised he planned to tie me up. As I started to get up, he was shouting, I'm only kidding, it was a joke. Tobin pretended to have a heart attack as Cheryl ran from the property. She was treated at a hospital when she gave a statement to the police and learned that Tobin was a registered sex offender. Tobin was required by law to check in with the police and notify them if he had moved, but shortly after attacking Cheryl in 2005, he moved from Paisley to Glasgow and began using a false name. Patrick McLaughlin. After Tobin's alias and photograph were released to the media in connection with the disappearance of Angelica Kluke, Cheryl phoned the police to tell them who he really was. Once it was realised that the man last seen with Angelica Kluke was a known violent sex offender, the police issued a new appeal to track him down. At a news conference on September 29, 2006, Detective Chief Inspector Elaine Ferguson provided a statement on the developments in the case. As a result of response to the media coverage in relation to the disappearance of Angelina Kluke, it has now been established that the man who we have been looking for in connection to that disappearance, and known as Patrick McLaughlin, is in fact now believed to be Peter Tobin. 
DCI Ferguson went on to say, Tobin is from the Paisley area and is considered a risk to members of the public. We are advising them not to approach him. This new information is of considerable importance. I would stress, however, that everything possible is being done to trace Angelica, and we have no information at this time to suggest that she is with Mr. Tobin. However, we have to pursue every line of inquiry and cannot discount this possibility. Detective Superintendent David Swindle, who would take over the investigation, explained that it was still a missing person inquiry and appealed to Tobin to come forward. Upon learning of the handyman's true identity, St. Patrick's Parish Priest Father Jerry Nugent spoke with a reporter for the Daily Record. He voiced his disbelief that the man he knew had a violent past. Pat, as I knew him, was a godsend for us. To me, he sounded like someone who genuinely cared for Angelica. I asked if she had been a good help painting the garage, and he said she was fantastic. He called her his wee apprentice. When the police arrived to speak to me, I asked Pat to stay in case they wanted to speak to him as well. He said he would gladly talk to them. He did so, but then disappeared. Almost six days after Angelica went missing, a second, more thorough search of St. Patrick's Catholic Church was conducted. Search advisor Sergeant Stephen McFeelin was brought to the church on the same day Tobin was identified as the last person to be seen with Angelica. Sergeant McFeelin had reviewed plans for the church and its grounds and noticed that there was what looked to be a lower level beneath the church floor. He believed there was a void there. The sergeant went into the building and looked for a hatch. Beneath the carpet beside the confession box, he found a trapdoor. Once the door was lifted, the officer immediately noticed the smell of decomposition. Looking into the void beneath the hatch, the officer could see some plastic sheeting, and protruding from beneath the material were someone's arms. Forensic scientist Carol Weston was called to the scene to recover any evidence from inside the small space before the body was removed. Along with PC David Thurley, Weston spent three hours collecting evidence from inside the 28 by 18 inch void. After removing a green plastic sheet and bin liners, it was noted the person was female. Wearing a blue check shirt, a pink sleeveless vest, a black bra and black trousers unbuttoned at the front. Her upper clothing had been pushed up to her neck, exposing her bare chest, which was covered in blood and what looked to be knife wounds. The victim's hands were bound with cable ties and linked together with another tie. Her face and mouth were covered with lengths of insulating tape, 
wrapped around her head so tightly that it distorted her features. Beneath the tape, it was evident that a cloth had been forced into her mouth. The bin liner left beside her head was opened, and the contents were examined. The items stained with blood included a sweatshirt, a towel, a knife, and a piece of wood. Analysis of the scene continued for 30 hours after the grim discovery while the body remained beneath the church floor. Annetta Kluke was asked to confirm if the jewellery found with the body belonged to her sister. It did, and the victim was identified as Angelica Kluke. News of the development spread quickly, and parish priest Father Jerry Nugent was among the first to express his shock. It is absolutely horrendous. I don't even know how long the body has been there. The church has been used every day. I don't understand where a body could have been hidden. It's not a secretive place at all. This is terrible news. Inside the church, you don't think of anything like this happening. It's really absolutely mm. dreadful. And Angelica was a very nice girl. To see you in that, you know, and I knew the, the man himself. He, he done some great jobs to him. <laughs> I think people are stunned. I hope I, I went back that night and it was about six o'clock. And if this is taking place, I went back in maybe shortly after this had happened. But I thought to myself, did I get away in time? Members of the community and congregation began to leave flowers and sympathy cards outside the church grounds. Some were addressed to Father Nugent, including one that read, I am so sorry about the sad news. Your only mistake is taking everyone at face value and thinking they have a nature like yours. Please know that we are right behind you and send you our support. You are always in our prayers. Locals expressed their support for the priest, who was known to do a lot of work with homeless charities and refugees. They defended him for hiring Tobin, arguing he never turned anyone away. There was, however, widespread criticism of the authorities for allowing a registered sex offender to slip under the radar. Speaking about Tobin, Angelica's sister Annetta told the press, He's a psychopath, not a person. How could police lose track of him in this electronic age? The police haven't given us any information. I'm sick of the police. Angelica Kluke's body was removed to the city mortuary in the early hours of October 1st, 2006. A post-mortem examination was conducted by pathologist Dr. Julie McAdam. Angelica had sustained six blows to the head, one of which had been inflicted with such force that it fractured her skull, removing a portion of her scalp and exposing the bone. Her hands were bruised, and one of her fingers had been broken as she tried to shield herself from the blows to the head. 
she had also sustained at least 16 stab wounds to the chest and a further three on her left hand and forearm, consistent with defensive injuries. The stab wounds to her chest had severed the rib cartilage and perforated both lungs. There was evidence that she had been the victim of a violent sexual attack. A semen was recovered. Dr. McAdam believed that Angelica was struck with a blunt object stunning her or rendering her unconscious, which gave her attacker enough time to bind and gag her before she regained consciousness. At some point during the attack, Angelica was then stabbed almost 20 times, but her injuries illustrated just how hard she fought in her final moments. The tape that had been wrapped around her head was removed and sent for analysis, along with the cloth that had been stuffed into her mouth. Angelica Kluke's cause of death was listed as multiple stab wounds, head injuries and occlusion of the mouth by gagging, as any of those injuries could have killed her. Speaking after the post-mortem, Detective Superintendent David Swindle stated, This was a very horrific and tragic death. I have been in the force for 29 years, mainly in CID, and in my experience this is a very, very violent death. All murders are tragic, but this is particularly tragic and violent. What I want to lay straight is that there are various lines to this investigation and we retain an open mind as to who is responsible for Angelica's death. Following the results of the post-mortem examination, I can confirm that this is now a murder inquiry. On the same day the post-mortem was conducted, the investigating officers received word from the police in London that they had been contacted by a nurse in the National Hospital for Neurology and Neurosurgery about a possible sighting of Peter Tobin. A man had presented himself at the facility complaining of stroke symptoms. He told the medical staff that his name was James Kelly. PC Alan Murray was dispatched to the hospital, and in an attempt to not scare off the suspect, he donned a nurse's uniform and walked through the ward where the man was resting. He immediately recognised the man as the prime suspect in Angelica Kluke's murder, Peter Tobin. After changing back into his own uniform, PC Murray was brought to a side room where Tobin had been moved. As he entered the room, Tobin told him, I knew you were police. I am relieved you are here. As the officer began to ask who he was, Tobin introduced himself and said, You have been looking for me. Tobin's movements were confirmed when CCTV footage was later analysed. He was recorded boarding a bus to London from Buchanan Street bus station in Glasgow. Speaking after the arrest in London, Detective Superintendent David Swindle told the media, 
Due to a medical condition, Mr Tobin is detained in a hospital in London and it is unclear when he will be fit to travel. It will be a decision for the medical staff to determine when he can be released. DSI Swindle said that Tobin had been arrested for failing to report a change of address and that he would be interviewed in relation to Angelica's murder when he was well enough to return to Glasgow. There's been a lot of speculation, but what I would stress is, at this stage, we still have an open mind regarding who was involved in the murder of Angelica Kluke, and we have forensic experts who will be there for some days, and I would appeal to the public and to the public jail to bear with us. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. A forensic examination of the garage on the church grounds was conducted. Blood spatter was found on the floor, the walls and the ceiling. The blood was confirmed to belong to Angelica Kluke, leading investigators to conclude that she had likely been attacked in the garage before her body was concealed under the church floor. Green paint had been noticed on several items, consistent with evidence that Angelica had been helping Tobin to paint the church shed when she was killed. Other biological evidence was examined, including semen samples found on Angelica's underwear and on vaginal swabs. After running the profile through the National DNA Database, it was conclusively determined that Peter Tobin's DNA matched. 
the chances of the profile belonging to anyone else were one in a billion. His fingerprints were also found on the tape wrapped around Angelica's face and on the plastic sheet wrapped around her body. Along with the knife found beside Angelica's remains, a blood-stained table leg was recovered from outside the church. It was believed to have been used to strike Angelica in the head at the beginning of the attack. With strong physical evidence linking Tobin to Angelica Kluke's death, he was charged with her murder at Glasgow Sheriff Court on October 10th, 2006. Two communities were in mourning over the loss of a promising young linguistic student. In Angelika Kluke's hometown of Skotchev in the south of Poland, her heartbroken father isolated himself to try and cope with his profound grief. Vladislav Kluke had raised his daughters from a young age and was proud that his youngest was so passionate about her studies. Angelika's dedication had earned her a scholarship at Gdansk University, where she studied Norwegian, and she had gone to Scotland to save money to support herself during the academic year. Vladislav had visited Angelika in Glasgow before, and she showed him her room in the chapel house which he described as a simple small room but enough for her. Angelica's sister, Annetta, described how Scotland reminded Angelica of her hometown, which was why she chose to spend her summers there since 2004. Annetta said, We'd read about it. We had looked at photos and we felt at home because we are Highland people as well. We come from a place with forests and hills. Angelica wanted to see all of Scotland. She liked Scandinavia, but Scotland was best. Annetta explained that while she was devastated and angry about what had happened to Angelica, she was not rushing to leave Glasgow. I want to walk where she walked, Annetta said. Follow in her footsteps. Go to the places she went. I want to hear echoes of her laughter. One of Angelica's school teachers, Bozina Medvid, remembered her student fondly when she remarked, Angelica was one of the best students from an early age. She was popular with the other children as well as with teachers. She had excellent grades. Everyone liked her and she was a darling child. Dr. Hieronym Jonaki from Gdansk University lamented that Angelika did not get the chance to return to her studies in October as planned. She was a highly promising student, extremely intelligent, very popular and a nice, kind, religious person. It's an absolute tragedy to lose someone who stood out so much. She had her whole life ahead of her. Scottish football club Celtic contributed £5,000 to a fund established to help Angelica's family with funeral and repatriation costs. 
At a memorial held on October 19th, Annetta addressed the crowd of mourners. She asked them to remember Angelica for her enthusiasm, courage and love of life, of discovery, of everything, being curious, having faith in people, faith in everyone. Peter Tobin's trial began at the High Court in Edinburgh in March 2007. Tobin was charged with murder, rape, concealment, breaching the peace and attempting to defeat the ends of justice by providing false names. Although the defendant had denied all of the charges, he entered a special defence to a rape charge, claiming Angelica had consented to have sex. The trial got off to a rocky start when the first jury had to be dismissed for technical reasons. However, testimony began after a second jury was sworn in days later. Proceedings began this morning with the selection of the jury. Eight women and seven men were picked for the uh, trial, which is expected to last around six weeks. The judge, Lord Mingus, uh, addressed them. He said that they must throw out of their minds anything they read, heard or saw in the media about this case around the time Angelica disappeared and her body was found. He said this would be a matter only for them, only of evidence heard in court. He said this would be a trial by jury and not a trial by media. The first witness to take the stand was Angelica's father. Through an interpreter, Vladislav said he had last spoken to his daughter three days before she was reported missing. He told the court she likes Scotland very much. She was helping with cleaning at the church and taking care of everything. In her testimony, Angelica's sister Annetta spoke about a shocking interview with Father Jerry Nugent that had been published in a newspaper prior to the trial. In the article, Father Nugent claimed that he had a sexual relationship with Angelica Kluke while she was a lodger in the chapel house. Annetta explained the claims were outrageous and untrue, and that the priest had become distant and detached from Angelica in the weeks before her death, after he learned that she was in a relationship with a married man, Martin McCaskill. Annetta said that the priest had a drinking problem and had a Jekyll and Hyde personality that had him switch between being a caring person and someone less savoury. Annetta testified that she did not condone her sister's relationship with Martin McCaskill as she felt that Angelica deserved more from life, but she did not berate her sister over Angelica's choices. The man in question, Martin McCaskill, also took the stand and explained how he had been suicidal with worry when he could not get in contact with Angelica. He recalled Peter Tobin, who he then knew as Pat McLaughlin, saying that Angelica had helped him paint the shed before saying she was going to her room for a shower and a cup of tea. Tobin would claim he had not seen Angelica, but he thought he heard her leaving through the front door. Martin also said that Father Jerry Nugent did not seem concerned by Angelica's disappearance 
and surprisingly revealed the man of the cloth did not lift a finger to help, locking himself in his room drinking. Nugent, the parish priest who had once been hailed as a progressive and charitable member of the clergy, addressed the court about his alcohol addiction and struggles with maintaining his vow of chastity. Father Jerry, as he asked to be called, told the court that he had resigned from his post at St. Patrick's Catholic Church two weeks before the trial began, serving 41 years as a priest. Nugent spoke about first meeting Angelica, who he had noticed at Mass in the summer of 2005. She told him that she needed accommodation, and he offered to let her stay in the chapel house if she would help out around the church. At this time, Angelica also had a second job cleaning in a hotel in the city centre. Nugent told the court, She had a great vitality and desire to live and was good to talk to. She did very much integrate herself in the community. She loved Glasgow, she loved Scotland, and she wanted to improve her language. She got involved with the parish activities. She loved talking to people and wanted to learn more and more about Scotland. She was very devout and was always at Mass on a Sunday. Nugent described how he had bought Angelica a £1,500 laptop to help with her studies and had also given her access to his credit card. He then claimed that between the end of August and the start of September 2005, he had a sexual relationship with Angelica. I enjoyed her company and she enjoyed my company. We would watch programs on TV and she would give me a good night kiss. That was the beginning of the physical relationship. I would very seldom go to her room and if I did, I would knock. On the night it happened, she invited me into her room and we started to kiss seriously and it led to sexual activity. I was not in love with her. I'm not even sure what that means. It was my weakness. My lustfulness. Nugent had told the police that Angelica had been the one to initiate everything and he was not even attracted to her. Asked about his statement, Nugent explained that he did not want anyone to think badly of Angelica as she could not defend herself but he said he took full responsibility for the relationship. He admitted he was wrong. There was no evidence to corroborate his claims, and the majority of people believed he was lying out of jealousy that Angelica began a relationship the following year when she returned to the chapel house. Speaking about his introduction to Tobin, who he knew as Pat McLaughlin, The witness said he had met him through the charity Loaves and Fishes, whose members often met in the chapel. Tobin had been asked to help paint a room in the church, and after that he continued to do odd jobs around the grounds. He quickly became one of the priest's most trusted helpers, 
and was given his own key and seat on the parish council. Jerry Nugent was asked about his reaction to Angelica going missing and evidence that he told the church press officer that he, quote, did not give a damn. Nugent said he could offer no explanation other than he may have been drunk at the time. One of the doctors who provided Peter Tobin care when Tobin admitted himself into the London hospital following Angelica's disappearance testified that he believed Tobin's symptoms were fictitious. Dr Nick Losef described how tests carried out on Tobin, who had presented himself under the false name of James Kelly, failed to show any cause for his claims of chest pain and weakness on his left side. He was quickly discharged into police custody as a result, and charges were laid. Coincidentally, the trial was halted for two days when Tobin suddenly claimed to be ill and was taken from the court to the hospital in an ambulance. When proceedings resumed, the DNA evidence was presented. Carol Weston the forensic scientist who had spent hours under the church floor collecting evidence, told the court that bloodstains found in a garage on the property matched Angelica's DNA. The bloodstains on the ceiling were consistent with cast-off blood spatter which occurs when a bloody weapon is drawn back in the air. Weston agreed that the bloodstained table leg recovered outside the church could have been used in the attack. The table leg also corresponded to a piece of wood found near Angelica's body. Semen recovered during the post-mortem and on Angelica's underwear was tested and found to be a match against the DNA profile of Peter Tobin. Tobin's DNA was also identified on the insulating tape that had been wrapped around Angelica's face and the cloth that was in her mouth. Upon his arrest, Tobin's clothes had been taken for testing and on his shirt his semen and Angelica's DNA were found. Her blood was also identified embedded in the watch Tobin was wearing and on a pair of jeans found in a wheelie bin at the church. DNA evidence proved that the jeans had been worn by Tobin. The expert witness said, the blood staining on the jeans is consistent with the wearer of these jeans kneeling in a pool of Angelica Kluke's blood. Furthermore, to cement the prosecution's case and dismiss any possibility that anyone else could be responsible, Catherine Boyle, a fingerprint expert, addressed the court. She explained that Tobin's fingerprints had been found on the insulating tape the black bin bag and on the plastic sheeting used to cover Angelica's body. After almost six weeks of legal proceedings, the closing arguments began. Crown Prosecutor Dorothy Bain QC told the jury, This is no murder mystery. This is no whodunit. The evidence demonstrates that he did it. Peter Tobin raped and murdered the young woman. 
It is a powerful, compelling and overwhelming case against Peter Tobin. Can I ask you to do justice to it and return verdicts of guilty? The prosecutor explained that Tobin was the last person seen with Angelica and had acted suspiciously before fleeing the church in the days after she went missing. Bain also highlighted how Tobin had given false names to the police in Glasgow and medical staff in London. Dorothy Bain QC said, If he were innocent, he would not have acted in this way. Sometimes actions do speak louder than words, and here are the actions of a guilty man. After reviewing the enormity of physical evidence against Tobin, the prosecutor told the jury the evidence proved that he had attacked Angelica in the garage. She said, It is an act which can only be described as an atrocity. The evidence shows that Angelica Kluke was a victim of a terrible and sustained attack. The death she must have endured is beyond description. In his closing argument, Peter Tobin's defence counsel argued that it was possible Angelica was killed by Father Jerry Nugent and a homeless man. Donald Finley QC implied that Nugent had knowledge of where Angelica's body was concealed before the details were released to the media and compared the case to a television show. Finley said, The features of this case are sensational and bizarre indeed. Could anybody have known? Would anybody have thought among your number that when the trial started you would hear such a strange and bizarre tale as unfolded before you? You have seen so many extraordinary characters doing extraordinary things and even in this court behaving in an extraordinary way. If someone had gone to the producers of Taggart and said, I have a script that involves a church, a girl from Poland, a priest, a handyman, all the characters in this case, don't you think it is at least a possibility they would say, go away and come back with something people will believe? Because they will not believe that. After three and a half hours of deliberation, the jury returned, unanimous in their verdicts. They found Peter Tobin guilty. Before sentencing him to life in prison, Judge Lord Mingus, who described the case as one of the worst he had ever seen, told Tobin... It is clear from your record that you are a danger to women and a serial sex offender. In my time in the law, I have seen many bad men and heard evidence about many terrible crimes. But I have heard no case more tragic, more terrible than this one. What you did to Angelica Kluke was inhuman. To bind her hands, gag her so tightly that her face was misshapen when her body was found to rape her, beat her about the head repeatedly with a table leg fracturing her skull, stab her repeatedly about the chest and body and then drag her through the church and dump her body under the floorboards as such rubbish. 
All this shows utter contempt and disdain for the life of an innocent young woman with her whole life ahead of her. You are, in my view, an evil man. Peter Tobin was told he would have to serve a minimum of 21 years before a parole board could consider his release. As Tobin was led away in handcuffs to begin his sentence, in one final act of defiance, he lashed out. His anger overflowed as he was led from court this evening. A final explosion of violence at the conclusion of a macabre sequence of events laid bare during a courtroom drama. Speaking after the verdict, Martin McCaskill said that he knew Angelica was dead when he learned about Peter Tobin's true identity. Over the last seven months, I have shed a lot of tears, Martin said, but I will shed no tears for Peter Tobin knowing that he will die in jail, a lonely old man who deserves everything coming to him. To use a very old cliché, I hope he rots there. Angelica's sister and father were relieved at the sentence, but felt as though Angelica had been put on trial alongside her killer. Her father, Vladislav, said, For me, it was like she was killed twice. First when she was murdered, then when her reputation was destroyed. Angelica was accused of unspeakable things she would never have done by people who did not know her as I, her family and her friends knew her. I know and will remember my daughter as the person she was. It should be a crime to talk about her as they did. But now I want to say nothing more. I want to be left alone. From the moment Angelica Kluke's remains were discovered and the details of her horrific death were revealed, the investigators knew that it was not the work of a first-time offender. An investigation called Operation Anagram was established to try and uncover any links between Peter Tobin and unsolved murders across the UK. As the details of his past and his nomadic lifestyle came to light, the detectives feared there were more of Tobin's victims, so they began looking for any other bodies he may have buried. On the 10th of February 1991, Vicky Hamilton left her sister's house in Livingston, heading for her family home near Falkirk, a journey she never completed. There's always a chance of solving any crime. Um, we have recently solved crimes you know, from 10, 15 years ago, uh, and these things that I've never forgotten, they're always there, and we act on any information we get. If somebody has murdered her, somebody else must know because nobody keeps a, a secret to themselves. Even a small scrap of fresh evidence could take them a step closer to knowing whether they're still dealing with a missing persons inquiry or a murder. This is the end of episode 57. The second instalment in this two-part case will be available in four days.
Thank you for listening. A special thanks to our new Patreon producer, Lex Mackay, and all our patrons for supporting the podcast. For more information on this episode, please see the show notes or visit our website, theywalkamonguspodcast.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.